you're new with us, we're working our way through Luke's gospel. We've been saying that for several weeks now, and we're drawing near the crucifixion. And the scene shifts today from the Mount of Olives to the high priest's house where Jesus is held uh, and eventually mocked and beaten and where Peter in the courtyard uh, denies Jesus. And so we're going to focus our attention on these verses, but also consider it in light of the whole uh, passion event. So let's pray together as we have a look at it this morning. Lord Jesus, you tell us in your word, if we abide in your word, truly we are your disciples and we will know the truth and the truth will set us free. So today it's a privilege to abide in your word and we pray for the liberating power of your word to set us free, not a freedom to sin, but a freedom to obey, a freedom to enjoy. Grant us the grace to see the things we need to see today that we may live in a way that would bear fruit for your glory. In Jesus' good name, amen. I don't know if you've ever been hiking or uh, perhaps biking when uh, a change of terrain suddenly gets your attention. Uh, you start out perhaps on blacktop and you're walking along and then you feel the, the crunch of uh, crushed gravel. You, you don't have to look down to know that things have changed. You can feel the difference. It's kind of like that, like that when we get to the passion narrative in Luke's gospel. When you get to uh, the Mount of Olives and the Garden of Gethsemane, which we looked at last week, it's like we went from blacktop to crushed gravel. Things just feel different in this section of the Gospels. And as we walk along this trail, we meet uh, various themes as we are on holy ground. And one of these themes is the theme of rejection. Jesus is the rejected Messiah. That theme is present in today's text. It will be present in the passages that, uh, that we go on to look at as well. Now, we can all identify with this. At some point in your life, you probably feared or experienced some kind of rejection. How many of you have ever been turned down for a job that you wanted when you knew that you were uh, perhaps qualified for it? Or has someone ever gotten a promotion instead of you when you thought you deserved the promotion? Have you ever been ignored in a meeting when you're sharing your ideas? Have you ever been turned down for a date? How many times have you been turned down uh, for a date? I remember in college when the girls would turn down the guys, they would always say, uh, this was in FCA, they would say, I love you like a brother. That was their kind way of saying, not a chance, pal, not a chance. Or maybe you've had your shot rejected in basketball. As one announcer puts it in March Madness, denied every time there's a block shot. Now we experience those kinds of rejections and we, we really anticipate those kinds of rejections in this life. But let me ask you a question this morning. Have you ever been rejected by someone who should have loved you? A parent, a fiance, a spouse, a teacher, a friend? That causes great hurt, doesn't it? That's a different kind of rejection. And I want to say to you this morning that Jesus understands that at a deep and profound level. Jesus was rejected by those who should have loved him. John tells us that he came to his own and his own what? Did not receive him. And all through the Passion event, we see that Jesus is rejected by various people in the betrayal of Judas, in the denial of Peter, and mentioned elsewhere in the falling away of the other disciples, in the guards mocking him, 
in the Jewish leaders hating him, in Pilate and Herod's unwillingness to defend him, and in the crowd ultimately crying, crucify him. And we're looking at two of those rejections this morning. First is a very personal rejection as Peter denies him three times. And then we're looking at this physical and emotional rejection as the guards mock him and beat him. It's good to reflect upon Isaiah 53 as we journey to the cross, as we're in this new section of, of terrain in Luke's gospel. Isaiah 53, of course, was written some 700 years before these events, and this is what is said of the Messiah. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should desire him and no beauty that we should desire him. Jesus had, they thought, the wrong background. They considered him insignificant. He's like a little twig that should be just cut away. He was unimportant, a stable, a manger, Nazareth, son of a carpenter. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't this Mary's son? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? His own brothers in John 7, we see, didn't believe him. He preached his first sermon and they wanted to throw him off a cliff, not give him a book deal. The wrong background. He had the wrong image. He wasn't King Saul, was he? He's too humble. He's too gentle. He's too meek. He's too just. The Greeks look for wisdom to wow you, and the Jews wanted miracles to wow you. And Jesus came humbly. And so Isaiah says he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. He is the man of sorrows. This doesn't mean that Jesus went around crying all the time or that he didn't enjoy laughing. He was a welcomed guest. We've seen in Luke's gospel to parties regularly. But Jesus also was a man of sorrows, and that was because of his holiness and his knowledge. He was angry at sin. He feels the weight of it more than we could ever imagine. He's the man of sorrows. He knows sorrow. He's acquainted with grief. He knows it well. And he was the rejected one, rejected by those who should have loved him. Isaiah says in verse 4 of 53, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Esteemed that is an accounting term. We added it up, and it makes no sense to believe in him. That's what we see in, in the pages before us in Luke's gospel. They esteem him not. Have you ever been rejected by someone who should have loved you? That's what Jesus faces. But let me ask you a different question. Have you ever been loved by someone who should have rejected you? That's what we have in Christ. By faith in Christ, we are accepted into the kingdom, though we don't deserve it. He should have rejected us. Instead, he receives us. Greater news doesn't exist. Greater love doesn't exist. As Tabidi puts it, the Lord Jesus Christ accepted complete rejection so that sinners with faith in him might receive complete acceptance. He was rejected that we may be accepted. And as we think on these things, this rejection that leads to our acceptance, let's look at this text in three ways. First of all, the sad failure of Peter. Secondly, the shameful acts of the guards. And thirdly, the sure word of Jesus. And you notice the text here, if you're looking at it, the structure, we have a, a structural sandwich, if you like. There's the bread at the top in verse 54, as the setting shows us that we're at the high priest's house. 
And then at the end of the text, verses 63 to 65, they show us what's going on inside of this house where Jesus is being mocked and beaten. And then tucked away in the middle, that scene wraps around Peter's denials, what's happening out in the courtyard. So that's what we're looking at today. That's the setting for this, first of all, sad failure of Peter. We see that the hour of darkness has come. We looked at that last week uh, up in verse 53. The religious authorities have rejected Jesus as Messiah. They've rejected his teaching. And now it tells us that Peter was following Jesus at a distance. Now, he will eventually deny Jesus, but at least at this point, he's somewhere in the ballpark following at a distance. And a fire is lit in verse 55, and so Peter uh, joins in to warm himself, and that's where this, um, uh, uh, this, this fascinating uh, ordeal takes place. As Peter, the one who boastfully said, I will never deny you, I will be, I'm willing to go to prison for you. And now he is confronted, and he denies Jesus in a variety of different ways. Luke recounts it for us with great brevity. First, he denies that he even knows Jesus. Look at verse 56 and 7. The servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looked, looking closely at him, said, this man was with him, and he denied it, saying, woman, I do not know him. I don't even know him. And you notice that he denies Jesus immediately, without the slightest hesitation. This from the guy who said he was ready to die for Jesus. And so we see that Peter here is facing something that we all face at certain levels, and that is, will you speak up for Christ, claim the name of Christ when the social pressure is on? Like it's one thing to confess Christ in private, as Peter had done, but now when he is surrounded by those who have uh, the opposite views of him and begin to put the pressure on him, that's the real test. And Peter caves in in his weakness. Well, secondly, the second in all, verse 58, he denies then that he is one of them. So first he says, I do not know him. And now he says in 58, uh, when they say you are also one of them, he says, man, I am not. It's very cold, isn't it? First, do you know uh, that, that you're a follower of Jesus? I don't know him. And now you're one of the disciples. I'm not one of them. He really denies his own fundamental identity to be in Christ, with Christ, and to be with his people. And so we're looking at the sad failure of Peter. Well, thirdly, he denies that he, he doesn't even know, he says, what you're, what you're talking about. <laughs> and you notice that an interval of about an hour goes, verse 59. So he's got time to process. He's got time to say, well, actually, I, I, let, let me go back to the first and second question. I don't know if you've ever done that before when they're asking you like a series of health questions, for example. Have you ever done this or this or this or your parents this or family? Sometimes you're like, how do I know what all my family have had? You're calling on the phone like, have you ever had this? Well, he, he's got an hour to just sort of back up and say, well, I, I'm going to boldly take my stand now, but that's not what happens, is it? They say you're also, or excuse me, they say certainly this man was also with him for he too is a Galilean. But Peter says, man, I do not know what you're talking about. Now, this is the climactic uh, denial, as Jesus uh, said that Peter would deny Jesus uh, three times. And this time, they even throw in the fact that his accent gives him away. He's a Galilean, and the Galileans were, were known for a particular kind of sort of backwoods accent. And they're like, you've got to be, you're not from here, pal. 
And Matthew and Mark tell us that Peter also took an oath to affirm that he was speaking the truth. Three denials. That follows, verse 60, with the rooster crowing, which is also a very interesting detail that Jesus said would also happen. Not only, Peter, will you deny me, but you're going to deny me three times. Not only are you going to deny me three times, but after that, a rooster's going to crow. It's remarkable, isn't it? It's the fulfillment, complete fulfillment of this prophecy. Now, if you go to uh, Jerusalem today, you can go to uh, the site of Caiaphas' house where Peter denied uh, Jesus three times in the courtyard, and there's a church that's called the Church of St. Peter, and the sign pointing you to the church is only, it just has a picture of a rooster with an arrow, and on top of the, the church is, is a rooster. And if you could choose a mascot for your life, an image, uh, you want to say, man, it's a bulldog or a, a Harley or, or something, something tough or something impressive, and for Peter, he gets a rooster. He thought he was a bold-hearted lion, and when the pressure comes, Peter caves in. Well, I'm, go- I'm glad that's not the last of his story. And something happens next that only Luke uh, records in verse 61, that the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Not sure exactly where this would have taken place, and you may probably, probably transferring Jesus from one place to the other, but at some point, he catches the eye of Peter. And I agree with the commentators that say this is probably not a look of reproach, but of encouragement and forgiveness, a look of, of grace. We don't know for sure, but I do think it carries hope for the future because you've got to believe at this moment, Peter is recognizing that the word of Jesus was true, which included not only that he would deny Jesus, but that he would what? He would turn again and strengthen his brothers. That's what was told about him. And he's like, Peter, I told you. But there's, there's the other side of the story. There's more to the story than just the denial. Well, that's when Peter has this revelation and he reacts. It says that he remembers the teaching of the Lord and how he said, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. We looked at that text previously in Luke chapter 22 and verse 31 and following. So he recalls the, the words of Jesus and he breaks into tears. And I think this is the beginning of Peter's repentance and his transformation. Grief and heartbreak have their place in the process of change. And I think this is the beginning of it. It's important, I think, to contrast Judas with Peter. They didn't do the same exact thing. One is wicked and the other is weak. One repented eventually and one did not. Judas planned to betray Jesus. Peter did not plan. He planned on going to prison or even dying for Jesus. But in a moment of weakness, he denied him. And eventually he would experience restoration, and eventually he would suffer for Christ and lay down his life for his Lord. So what is, this, what is the application for us in this story of Peter? I would just put it in two words, humility and hope. Humility. What we should see in this story is the danger of pride in the form of prayerlessness and presumption. Prayerlessness and presumption, which are fruits of pride. Peter never thought this would happen. 
I don't know if you've ever said, I will never, only to break your promise. I remember we were learning how to do email. I was really dating me in college. And I said, I will never use email. This is the dumbest thing I've ever seen in my life. Why don't you just call the person on the phone? It just looks so foreign with the at symbol and all of these things. And I, I use some email these days. I said, I will never have an inside dog. And we, now we have two regularly sleeping with us. I will never have a minivan. And I had to trade my Jeep for a minivan several years ago. Drove it for many years. At a more serious level, level, Peter said, I will never deny Jesus. Mark's gospel tells us that he says, even though they all fall away, I will not deny you. He doesn't deny that some will fall away. He just tells Jesus, there is one exception, and you're looking at it. Pride. Even though Jesus says you will all fall away, and then he adds a Bible verse from Zechariah in Mark's gospel, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. Peter says, I will not. So why did he fall? I think he genuinely believed he would not fall. I think he genuinely loved Jesus. I think the issue is pride, self-reliance, prayerlessness. You see, when we have a high view of ourselves and we don't take the enemy seriously, we're a walking disaster zone. You remember what Jesus said last week we looked at? He told the disciples, pray that you may not enter into temptation. So the spirit of a disciple is not one of cocky self-reliance, but humble spirit dependence. And to live like that is to really live contrary to the spirit of the age. This is not the spirit of the age. The spirit of the age is like Peter, to have a big mouth and a fat head. And we need Paul's words where he says, take heed lest you fall. Right? So there's humility in this story. But the, secondly, there's hope. There is good news for the fallen in this story of Peter. We know that the Lord Jesus restored Peter, and we know what a hero of the faith he became, right? Think about the fact that this guy who caves in the face of this servant girl that comes to him, in the face of these people at the fire. People will name cities after him. They will name colleges after him. They will name churches after him. They will name their kids after him. No one's naming anything after Nero. Maybe their dog, they don't like their dog. No one names anything after Caesar, except a salad, maybe pizza, something like that. But how did this guy go from, I don't even know him, I'm not one of them, to, yeah, let's, na let's name the church after him. Let's, let's name a city after him. Well, his testimony encourages us. If you've ever made a mess of things in your spiritual life, if your cheese continues to fall off your cracker, you have a, you have a testimony to encourage you in Simon Peter. Three strikes and you're out in baseball, but not in the Christian life. Failure is not final in the Christian life. You are never beyond the reach of God's restoring grace. In John 21, Jesus rolls up, has some breakfast with the disciples, and he asks Peter three times, corresponding to his triple denial, do you love me? And he commissions him to go feed my sheep. In other words, when you turn, go strengthen your brothers. That's the kind of Savior we have. There's hope in this story today. 
There's not a friend like the lowly Jesus. No, not one. No, not one. So see the sad failure of Peter. Fortunately, wonderfully, it's not the, the end of his story. But we, we see that rejection in this story. Secondly, we see the shameful acts of the guards. Just a few verses here to show us that Jesus endures not just physical pain and torture as he goes to the cross, but he also endures shame. The men holding Jesus in custody were mocking him, and they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many things against him, blaspheming him. Now mockery, we see all through the, the passion event from the guards here. Next week, the religious leaders. Later, Herod makes fun of him. The soldiers mock him at the cross. And then even one of the guys on the cross next to him mocks him. It's, a, it's rejection in the form of, of mockery. It's people not taking Jesus seriously. It tells us here that these guards had basically invented some games to, to have some fun with Jesus. They blindfold him because he's supposed to be a prophet. So they say, uh, we're going to hit you. You tell us who it was that hit you, prophet. And then they blaspheme him. That is to speak against his character. They slander him. The idea, I think, is that things that were said were so bad, Luke says it's not fitting to write them. So I'll just use the word blaspheme. Now, you've got to believe, probably for these temple guards, this was just another day in the office, enjoying meeting, beating and mocking and ridiculing a prisoner. But they do not realize, as the next passage goes on to show us, that the one that they're mocking and beating is the Messiah, the Son of Man, the Son of God. I think it's important for us to think on the shame of Christ for a moment, because that too is encouraging for us as we think about what he went through for us. As you think about the sufferings of Christ, we, our minds immediately, I think, go to the physical sufferings, and, and, and that is true. He suffered, as we're going to see, in awful ways. But there's also the shame of the cross. Shame in, in the form of mockery here. Shame eventually in the form of injustice, as an innocent man is put to death. And then shame of all shame, as he's nailed to a cross in crucifixion. And the astonishing fact about this experience of shame is about who is being shamed. Jesus deserves the highest of honors, and he's shamed. One of the twelve betrays him. His closest friend denies him. False witnesses testify against him. A governor won't defend him. Religious leaders falsely accuse and slander him. Later, people just passing by deride him. Even those who are crucified with him revile him. Eventually, Jesus will be stripped spit upon, punched in the face, mocked, stripped of dignity, utterly alone, not able to carry his own cross, and die hanging on the cross. And we ask, what did Jesus do to deserve this? Oh, he healed the sick. He raised the dead. He fed the hungry. He cared for the marginalized. He taught the words of life. And he's shamed. Think about the shame that you have endured in your life. Think about the, the times in which you've been embarrassed or mocked or disgraced or rejected or bullied. Some of you students may be enduring shame and embarrassment in school presently. Maybe people have shamed you because, through how they've lied about you or someone that should have loved you has abused you. Someone's verbally attacked you. 
Somebody's cheated on you. There are two types of shame, broadly speaking. There is a type of shame you should feel because you've sinned against God. It's not good to feel no shame for sin. You don't want a seared conscience. There's objective sin and objective guilt, and you should feel shame for it. When our first parents sinned in the garden, before they did that, they were naked and unashamed. And after they sinned, one of the results of sin is that of shame. Our story doesn't stop there because Jesus forgives shame. He forgives sin. But that is one type of shame, the shame you should feel because you've sinned against God. Secondly, there's a shame you should not feel because someone has sinned against you. And here's the good news. Jesus deals with both types of shame. Concerning the shame you should feel because of sin, he forgives sin. He removes guilt and shame. He cleanses us. He dignifies us. He forgives sinners, even the guys who are mocking him in this text. He's willing to forgive. Through repentance and faith, Jesus removes guilt, cancels debt, covers shame, and grants us his righteousness, giving us a completely new identity. Our shame is replaced with honor. By trusting in Jesus, we are pure, righteous, without blemish. We are completely new. Concerning the shame you shouldn't feel because someone has sinned against you, I want to encourage you by the fact that Jesus can identify with you, He's able to strengthen you, and he's shown us how to endure it. Jesus, as Hebrews puts it, is the sympathetic high priest. There is no one better to turn to if you're experiencing this kind of misplaced shame. He can look to us today and he can say, I know what it's like to be hated. I know what it's like to be rejected. I know what it's like to be abused. I know what what it's like when the whole world is laughing at you. He knows all these things, not just because he is omniscient and knows all things, but because he endured it. He went through it. And this is why Hebrews 12 puts it like this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, here it is, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary and faint-hearted. Don't grow weary and faint-hearted. Consider Jesus. He despised the shame. That is, he minimized it. He counted it as nothing. How do you do that? Well, that text gives us one way we think about the joy that is set before us. To endure present shame, we must believe that eternal joy is coming. Jesus believed that on the other side of this shame in this text was glory. One day, shame and pain will be no more. Right now, we endure, as Paul puts it, light momentary afflictions compared to the eternal weight of glory that's waiting for us. Peter also gives us, in his own epistle, uh, something to think about as we're enduring this kind of shame. He says in 1 Peter 1, 21 to 23, for, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, this is Jesus, nor was there deceit found in his mouth. And here is the instruction. When he was reviled, 
he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. People will revile us. Some of you will face this more than others. Jesus did not revile in return. Instead, he entrusted himself to the Father. He believed that there is an end to the story, that judgment is coming. The wicked will be held to an account. In the present moment, we entrust ourselves to God. But this doesn't mean that we don't act against injustice now and do all of the necessary things to act against abuse, but it means even in that, we are entrusting ourselves to God. And we believe that Jesus will have the last word. So how do we endure shame? How do we endure mockery? How do we endure th th this kind of treatment? We believe that there's joy and there's a judge. There is joy on the other side of shame and there is a judge. The wicked will be held to an account. Jesus helps us with both types of shame. The shame we should feel because of sin and the shame we shouldn't feel when people sin against us. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Jesus is shamed throughout the Passion event, though he should have received accolades from everyone. He should have been honored, respected, praised, worshipped. Instead, we re read of these shameful events. Yet in the midst of shame, we know that there's going to be a great reversal. His shame will be replaced with the highest of honors. Soon he will be exalted at the Father's right hand. And so we see the rejection, first of all, through Peter, then we see it through the, the guards. Finally, let me draw your attention to the sure word of Jesus. And I want you to just glance back over uh, both of these paragraphs for a moment and consider this encouraging reality that G what Jesus said would come to pass just came to pass. In verse 61, you notice that Peter says, it says uh, that Peter remembered the saying of the Lord. Now, what saying was that? Well, that was chapter 22. When Jesus looked to Simon and he said, Satan demands to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And Peter protests and says, this will never happen. And he says, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times. And what did we just read? Exactly what Jesus said would come to, come to pass. And the same is true when Jesus is mocked here. Jesus also predicted this mockery. In chapter 9, verse 22, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised again. Or chapter 17, verse 25, but first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And most closely to our text in chapter 18, 32 and 33, for he will be delivered up over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. And here he is being mocked. And there will be more mockery to, uh, to come, but these predictions are already beginning to come true. So my friend, you can trust the word of Jesus. If the prediction of the mockery and the denials are true, now we begin to anticipate the fact that him being raised on the third day is going to come true as well. And of course it does. And then this assurance about the, the true word of Jesus can give you assurance about everything that he said. When he says, the one who comes to me, I will never cast out. That's true. 
My sheep will never perish. That's true. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. That's true. I will come again and take you to myself. That's true. The word of Jesus is the pillow on which we rest our weary heads. He was rejected that we may be accepted forever. That's true. So my friend, if you're not a Christian, do not reject him. Receive him and experience a love like no other. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the sure word of Jesus Christ. That everything he says is true. Not one word will perish or fall. We thank you for that grace and for the grace of opening up our eyes to behold the beauty and wonder of the gospel for bringing us to Jesus. We thank you for the grace of Jesus, the grace that we see in this story of Peter, that his failure was not final. Even this morning, I pray that many would experience your restoring grace and go on to strengthen their brothers and sisters. Jesus, we pray that as we endure mockery and shame in this life, that we would turn to you and not away from you, that we would know you can identify with us in these moments. You strengthen us and you show us the way to not revile in return, but entrust ourselves to, the, to God. Grant us power to do that, we pray, as we encounter these things. And now as we prepare our hearts to take the Lord's Supper, we're reminded, Lord Jesus, of the shame and the reproach that you bore, that we may have all of the blessings uh, that have come to us in the gospel. So we pray you would increase our gratitude now as we think about this in Jesus' good name. Amen.